Now will you turn with me to Ephesians 3 as we look at what Paul calls the uh, mystery of the church. I'm sure when you saw the title of the sermon you uh, were glad that the mystery of the church would once for all be cleared up. For some of you, uh, the church is indeed a, a mysterious thing. It was for me, as a, as a young man growing up, I really had very little use for the institutional church. I was a Christian, and uh, I loved the Lord, but I just couldn't see the, the place that the church had in God's scheme of, of things. And uh, that uh, continued on through my college years and the years while I was in the service, and even through seminary. Uh, just before I graduated from seminary, I went to my major professor, in Howard Hendricks, and asked him, uh, he asked me what I planned to do after I graduated, and I said, I really don't have any idea, I, I except I don't want to be a pastor in a church or work on the staff of a church. And his comment was, well, I know a church in California that's about as unchurchy a church as you'll ever, uh, ever find, why don't you go out there? And it was largely through my contact with Ray Steadman at Peninsula Bible Church that I began to see that God's ultimate purpose for his household, his church, and the enormous impact that a body of believers can have on a, on a community. So I, I'm, I came to that conclusion somewhat late myself. I should have seen it from Scripture. It's taught very clearly in the passage we have before us this morning. Uh, it's difficult to break into the middle of a book like this because all of Scripture is placed in a, in a setting, as a context. And uh, it's good to review uh, that context in order to understand more fully the passage that, that we're looking at. Uh, in chapter 1, Paul describes for us the, the good things that come to us as a result of, of being in Christ. He says, first of all, that God the Father chose us. He uh, he included us in. He chose us, Paul says, to make us holy and without blame. He didn't choose us because we are holy and without blame, but rather in order to, to make us what God wants us to be. He, he adopted us as sons. He, he brought us into the family. God the Father did that. And then uh, God the Son uh, redeemed us. He brought us out. Paul uses a word that was used for the purchase of slaves in the marketplace. He bought us out and set us free uh, to serve in a new capacity as, as his servants. And he forgave us all of our sins. All of them. The big ones, the little ones, the big lies we tell, the so-called white lies. All the sins committed past, present, and future. The sins we've not yet committed. We've been forgiven. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Infinite forgiveness, ongoing forgiveness. So that when we fail to be holy and, and blameless, which is the purpose to which he has set us, there's always underneath the everlasting arms. This incredible, ongoing uh, uh, forgiveness of God. And then, thirdly, Paul says, the Holy Spirit has sealed us. We've been given the, the Holy Spirit as a, as a down payment of everything that's yet coming to us. And the possession of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, is the mark of God's ownership. God looks at Becky, and, and he sees the Spirit of God in her, and he says, she's mine. She belongs to me. And he looks at Marilyn, and and he sees the Holy Spirit, and he says, She's mine, or Mo, or anyone else here. 
It's, it's that stamp of ownership, the mark of ownership uh, that, the, that the Spirit of God provides. So what Paul tells us in chapter 1 is that God the Father chose us and brought us in to make us holy and blameless. And uh, the Lord Jesus made possible for us an, an ongoing forgiveness. He redeemed us, bought us out from sin. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that everything that God has promised is coming to us and the mark of, of God's ownership of our person. That's chapter 1. And in chapter 2, uh, Paul compares our former state with our present state in Christ. Uh, it's sort of like these old uh, Charles Atlas ads that you used to see. Uh, you have a before and after picture, and the before picture shows this 97-pound uh, weakling, and, and uh, then you see what a, a few months of uh, doing Atlas's exercises will do for you. That's what Paul does in chapter 2. He says, before you came to Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sin. As Bob Dylan uh, puts it, stone cold dead did I come out of the womb. That's, that's the way we were formerly. But in Christ, we've been made alive. We've been given a new life. And not only is that true of us individually, but it's true corporately. God has not only made us new men and, and new women, he, he's made one new man, a new person, which is his body. Now, we read that passage uh, earlier, chapter 2, uh, verses 12 and following. But uh, in that section, Paul calls on the Ephesians to remember that they were once separated from Christ. Uh, the word Christ here, the Greek word Christos, is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. So what Paul is saying is that once upon a time you were separated from the Messiah. You had your uh, philosophers and teachers and social scientists and uh, politicians and historians and thinkers and, and shakers and movers and, and leaders, but you didn't have anyone like Messiah, someone who would come and, and set things right. And... Secondly, he says you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, you weren't on the inside of a nation that God picked out, a unique nation through whom he planned to bring salvation to the world. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. That is, these great promises that were affirmed over and over again to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then to David and others of, of Israel's leaders. These promises that they would beget a a line of individuals who would, who would bring blessing to the entire world. And he says, you, were, you had no hope, and you were without God. That's the way we, we Gentiles were. But now in Christ Jesus, he says, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. And uh, it's Jesus who did this. He is our peace, who made both groups, that is, Jew and Gentile, into one. There, there, there could be no greater difference than the difference between Jew and Gentile. There's real hostility between those two ethnic groups. And he, he says, in Christ, they've been made one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The dividing wall is the law, which the Jews used to, uh, to make demands on others. It's the sort of thing you do with the law. You, you lay the law on others. And, and we say, you live up to my demands, and then I'll accept you. I'll approve of you. And that was the nature of the law. And that divided Jew and, and Gentile. Jews and Gentiles were like uh, two families living in a duplex with an impenetrable wall in between. And the Gentile family could hear the Jews in the next apartment uh, having a party. And, 
and hear the laughter and the fun and the enjoyment and the, and the blessing, but they were excluded. But Paul says when Jesus came, that wall was torn down, and now Jew and Gentile are one, one happy family. And that leads Paul in chapter 3 to say, for this reason, that is because the Gentiles have been included in, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, uh, if, if you happen to have heard of the commission that was given to me, you know what, ha- what happened? To Paul? He, he lost his train of thought. He started to, uh, to pray. If you want the continuation of his, uh, of his statement, you have to go down to verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. What Paul intended to do was pray that the Gentiles would comprehend and apprehend all the blessings that were theirs in Christ. He started to say, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, bow my knee before, before our common Father. But he, he lost his way. He forgot what he was going to say. That's interesting. You know, Paul is very human, and, and the process of inspiration works through, through the apostles' uh, humanity in order to reveal truth. Have you ever done that? You get in the middle of a conversation and you get about halfway through a sentence and it triggers a thought in your mind and you go off in another direction and people say, huh, wait. That's what happened to Paul. His attention was diverted by this statement, I'm a a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. That's exactly what had happened. It's because of Paul's Gentile mission that he was put in jail and eventually shipped off to Rome. And that reminds him of the nature of, of his commission. So he begins to develop this idea that he is a prisoner on behalf of the, of the Gentiles. And uh, centers his argument in the following verses from 2 through 13 around one idea that's repeated twice. There's a phrase in verse 2. Uh, it's, uh, it's this one, that, that God's grace had been given to me which occurs again in verse 7, the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. And uh, his argument turns around that phrase. Two things were given to Paul in verses 2 through 6, the mystery, which was given by Revelation, and in verses 7 through 13, his ministry. Now, first, uh, the mystery that was revealed to Paul. If indeed... I'm reading from verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. That's where the union occurs, through the gospel. That's the means. Four observations I'd like to make about this paragraph. The first is that Paul speaks of a mystery. Now, uh, for us, a mystery is something that's hard to understand, something strange, something a little bit weird or with a twist at the end like one of Agatha Christie's uh, novels. But uh, the apostles used the word mystery in a, in a different way. This term is taken from the mystery religions of their day, which were very much like the secret societies that we have today. Uh, once you're initiated into one of these societies, they give you the secret uh, handshake and the secret high sign and the password and so forth. You're on the inside. You know something that no one else knows outside. Uh, 
Now that's the way it was in, the, in, in these mystery religions. And the apostles take that, the idea of a mystery and apply it to the concept of revelation. A mystery is something that we could never know if God didn't tell us. But because God has told us, we're on the inside. This is, this is a revelation, Paul says, that we would never know if God had not imparted this, this truth to us. The second thing he says is that he, he had referred to it uh, before in brief. And uh, we can go back to chapter 1 and note there's just one very brief reference to the, to the mystery. And furthermore, he, he says this is not uh, something that was known well to prior generations. Uh, the Old Testament prophets didn't have this uh, revelation in, in full. It was not known, he says, in other generations to the extent that it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. There were hints of it in the Old Testament, but it was not fully re- revealed. And, and now the content of that mystery is given to us in verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, we Gentiles have been included in. We, we are a part of a historic continuum, a nation that began with Abraham through whom God intends to save the world. You see that? God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and, and I'm going to, to bless your seed. You'll have uh, a great nation, he says, will come from you. And through that nation, I will bring salvation to the earth. Now, what Paul is saying is that we have been included into that nation. We're part of that, of that, of that group, that unique group that God created in Abraham. And, 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 and it's our task, as it was that of, of the nation of Israel, to bring salvation to the world. Now, for myself, I do not believe that Israel uh, came to an end or was derailed at the time of, of Pentecost uh, and that God has, uh, has set Israel off to the side for a period of time. I think we are Israel. That's the point that Paul is making. We've been grafted in to this, this tree, the main stalk, of God's blessing. Uh, if you go back uh, to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, Paul says uh, somewhat the same thing. Verse 26, Galatians three twenty-six. You were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek so that in, in Christ we can no longer be racists. There is neither slave nor free. We can't be elitist. There is neither male nor female. We can't be sexist. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Who are we? Well, we're Jews. Spiritually, we're Jews. We're part of this, uh, this great nation that God called out to bring blessing to the world. And then if you look at the uh, last uh, few statements in the book of Galatians in chapter 6, Paul says in verse 15, 
For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For those who, uh, who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That's you and me. So uh, cheer up, Gentiles. You're kosher. You've been brought in. And that gives great dignity to us. We're part of what God began with Abraham, and he's continuing in this day to work through a great nation, a body of people, to bring blessing to the world. Uh, we, we pulled into our cul-de-sac the other day and, and uh, happened to see the two rabbis that have been in town visiting rabbis from, I think, from, from Seattle. Some of you may have seen the article in the Statesman. And uh, we recognized them by their dress and, and pulled up beside them. And, and you know my love for the Jewish people and, and the Hebrew scriptures. And I was, I was really glad to meet these men. I rolled my window down and we started chatting away. And, and uh, we asked them what they were doing and, and uh, talked probably for five minutes through the open windows. And uh, uh, they became aware that I, I knew a little something of the Old Testament. And, and he looked at my nose and he said, are you a Jew by any chance? And uh, I, uh, I missed a golden opportunity. I, I, I have been mad at myself ever since. I should have said, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. I'm a part of the, of the Israel of God. But I, uh, I completely missed it. I said, no, no. I said, I'm, I'm a goyim. I'm, I'm one of the Gentiles. And that was, that was the end of our conversation. They had to move on. But the fact is, we are today God's nation, God's people. A holy people called out to bring salvation to the world. Now, uh, Paul goes on in verse 7 to talk about his ministry. This uh, mystery, he says, is uh, the thing of which he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. That is, the ministry was given to Paul by God's power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was giving, a given. Paul doesn't have a, a self-image problem. He simply recognizes that he'd been guilty at one point uh, in his life of uh, trying to thwart and frustrate God's plan to bring salvation to the world because he, he had uh, been a persecutor of the church. But he says this uh, grace was given despite his uh, ineptitude and his lack of understanding and his foolishness. God was rich in mercy toward him. Grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, the infinite riches of Christ. Messiah. To preach Messiah to them. To let them know that they'd been brought in. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Uh, these were the two elements of Paul's ministry. He was an evangelist and a teacher. Paul would move into a, a town where the gospel had not been preached, and he would go into a, uh, a synagogue and uh, wait for someone to ask him to speak. He probably wore his rabbinic robes, and uh, there was some indication, I'm sure, in the way he dressed that he'd been a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the uh, Jewish hierarchy and was highly regarded, and, and people would, the, the, the uh, uh, leader of the synagogue would ask him to read scripture and comment upon it. And Paul would step to the podium, take out the Old Testament scriptures, and begin to preach Christ. 
And as a result, some of the Jews and many of the God-fearing Gentiles would respond. And uh, uh, as you know from our study in Acts, things would get tense. And normally what would happen is that Paul would be thrown out of the synagogue. And he would take his little group of believers off to someone's house and start a home Bible study and, and begin to instruct them. And as he uh, worked at his trade as a sailmaker, he would share the gospel with others, or he'd go out into the marketplace and preach, and, and uh, Gentiles would begin to respond, and he would gather them in and teach them. And Paul says, that, that, that's, that's the essence of my ministry. I led people to Christ, proclaimed the gospel, preached to them Messiah, and enlightened them as to the resources that, the, that they have in, in Christ. And then in verse 10, he gives the result. In order that, with the result that, the, the, the phrase indicates purpose or result, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations, that is, the, the fact that I'm in jail, on your behalf, for they are your glory. In other words, don't, uh, don't worry about me, Paul says. I'm bold. I have confidence. God will take care of me. Uh, I'm simply here as a result of my proclamation to the Gentiles, and I'll continue to do so in order that the manifold, the variegated, the multicolored, multi-hued, multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And we ask, what in the world is Paul talking about? I would think that the result of Paul's teaching the church would be an impact upon the, the community. It would be the human race that's influenced. But Paul says... The result of this sort of instruction is that, that principalities and powers in heavenly places, angelic principalities and powers, will be thwarted. And there are several ways to interpret this statement. Some would take it to mean good angels. For myself, I, I think it's a reference to Satan and his horde of evil angels. Because this is the direction that Paul is headed. He says in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against humanity. The problem is not our next-door neighbor who scoffs at us because we're Christians. They're not the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. The real enemy lies behind the human race. It's Satan, the liar and murderer, who's out to, to destroy the human race if he can possibly do so. What we don't realize, Paul says over and over again, is that uh, things are not as they seem. Uh, Shakespeare's right. All the world's a stage. Uh, it, it's, it's what's going on behind the stage that really matters. In the unseen realm of the spirit world, Satan and his angels are whipping up a froth and trying to thwart and frustrate God's attempts to bring about salvation and trying to stunt our growth and keep us from being what God intends us to be. And when we as a church act as the church should act, we deal a death blow to Satan and his angels. That's what Paul is saying. Now, a good illustration of that is the book of Job. I think that's one of the reasons that book is included. It gives us a, a glimpse behind the scenes. Helps us to see what, 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 what's really going on. You know the story. Job is a good man. 
best man in, in, in the ancient Near East, as far as we know. That's the description given it. And uh, God says to Satan, have you observed my servant Job? How, what a godly man he is? Satan says, in effect, big deal. You know, he's healthy, wealthy, and wise. Who wouldn't be godly? You've given him everything. He's got all sorts of money. He has a beautiful home. He has uh, healthy children. He has a wife who loves him. And who wouldn't be godly in, in, in a situation like that? And God says, all right, let, let's see what happens when Job is put to the test. So he gives Satan permission to afflict Job in all these dreadful ways that we read about in in the book of, of Job. And Job passes the test. Everything is taken away from him, but he never does curse God. He never turns his back on God. And that drama, that, co- that cosmic drama, is being played out day after day in this congregation right here. Now, for example, and I'm going to use names, but I'm, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. Any resemblance to anyone living or dead is purely coincidental. Uh, <laughs> Satan says, have you observed Mary? Uh, Mary has been faithfully teaching a Sunday school class for months. And nobody ever says thank you. No parents ever call to appreciate her. The elders don't give her any support. She's been working away at that job for months and nobody cares. You just, just let that go on for a few more months and she'll turn resentful and bitter and she'll quit. And God says, well, let's see. Let's see. And Mary lives out her life to God. She plays the game for him. She doesn't care what sort of credit she gets. And she faithfully fulfills her responsibility. And Satan is dealt a lethal blow. Or, or Satan says, there's Bob. He, he sees his friend sinning. You, he's got two alternatives. He'll either go to his friend and, and restore him, spiritually wash his feet get him back on the, on the path, or he'll gossip about him. And, say, and God says, let's see what happens. And uh, Bob goes to his friend, and he very lovingly confronts him with his sin. And, and Satan is dealt a lethal blow. And you see, this is what Paul is saying. There is a great cosmic battle going on, and we in the church have a part to play in seeing to it that Satan and his angels are are put in their proper place. They're thwarted and frustrated. It's by our righteousness that this is accomplished. Now, Paul, finally, in verse 14, gets around to his prayer. And uh, he says, For this reason, for all the above reasons, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom all the family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Some of the family is in heaven. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Rebecca, Sarah, uh, Hezekiah, our Lord Jesus, the apostles, Wesley, Calvin, Pascal. Uh, they're, they're, they're part of the family in heaven, but there is also part of the family here. That's you and me. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom all the family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
of the love of, of Christ and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And that's a very complex statement, but uh, essentially Paul is praying for three things. The first thing he prays for is that the Ephesians and that we might be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now he's writing to Christians. And our question is, doesn't Christ already dwell in our hearts? Yes, he does. But the, the word that Paul uses here is a word that means to be at home. Uh, there, there are two very similar words in Greek. One means to, to visit a house, to be a stranger there and live there. The other means to be a resident there. And that's the term that Paul uses here. What Paul prays for is that the Lord Jesus might have the run of our life. That he might have the right to occupy every room in the house. Not just to live in the guest room, but occupy our entire being. Uh, it calls to mind Bob Munger's uh, little book, My Heart, Christ's Home, which I'm sure most of you have read. It's based on Revelation 3.20. That verse uh, reads, Jesus is speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and, and eat with him. It's an uh, Eastern metaphor for fellowship. I'll come in and live. That's how you become a Christian. The Lord Jesus knocks on the door of your heart. And you open the door and you let him in. But most of us consign him to the uh, guest room and, and maybe the dining room and living room. And that's about it. The kitchen is ours. Because we have all of these appetites and tastes, desires that we want to keep to ourselves. And uh, the Lord comes and stands on the door of that room. And he very gently and very persistently knocks until we let him in. And he takes the garbage out and he uh, cleans the place up and... And uh, makes, uh, makes the kitchen a fit place to, to eat and live and, and work. And then he comes to the door of, of the library of our house. And we don't want him in there because we've got a lot of dirty books on the shelves in there. And, and he knocks on the door until we let him into the library to clean up our thoughts and that, uh, that area of our life. And the Lord systematically makes his way through every room of our house, every element in our life, and asserts his lordship. That's what Paul's talking about. It's the progressive assertion of his lordship in our lives. Most of us, when we accept him into our life, accept him in his lord, but we don't understand the implications of lordship. And so the Lord begins, little by little, to insist upon moving into other areas of our life and being lord there. What Paul is praying for is that we, by faith, that is, as we depend upon him, we'll find Christ occupying more and more of our life, becoming more and more Lord of all elements of our, of our being. With the result, and this is the second element of his prayer, that um, we, being rooted and grounded in love, uses two metaphors, one from the field of uh, uh, horticulture and one from architecture, he says, you're like a tree with roots that go down into the soil, and the soil is God's love. We take our nourishment out of God's love. And uh, the second uh, metaphor is taken from uh, uh, the building enterprise. He said, God's love is like a foundation. It's secure. It's unshakable. God's love is always there. He loves us just the way we are. He's relentless in his pursuit of us. Loves, loves us warts and all. 
It doesn't make any difference what we are or what we've done. He loves us and keeps on loving us. And that's the soil in which we grow and it's the foundation of our love so that as we increasingly comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth that is all the dimensions of God's love in its infinite extent, we will come to know and experience the love of Christ. And he's not talking about Christ's love for us, but, but Christ-like love. You see, there's a process going on. As Christ begins to take up more and more of our life, as he becomes more and more Lord, we become more and more loving, like Christ. That's the goal of it all. The goal of being a Christian is not to be more religious, but it's to be more righteous, more loving. And we'll find ourselves becoming more tender and forgiving and tolerant and understanding and gracious and thoughtful and morally courageous. And we will increasingly, to our surroundings, make, make visible the love of our invisible Lord. And then finally, he says, and the bottom line is the last line of verse 19, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What he's saying is that we may be as full as God is, as complete as he. And that's what Jesus said. Be complete. And he uses a word. It's based on the same root. Be complete. Be perfect. Be mature. As my heavenly Father is mature. That's staggering when you think about it. God's intent is that his people, that's, that's, that's us right here. We are part of, of this line of, of people throughout history that God has used to display his character, to be a light to the world outside, and to bring salvation to the world. And the way that is done is for us to increasingly let Christ be Lord so that Christ's love is manifest in our life to the world outside. To the point that we are God-like. We are filled with the fullness of God. We are as good in the world as God is. Now, we won't always rely upon Christ's resources, but when we do, there's forgiveness and there's restoration. And we can count on him to give, him what, give us what we need to be what we're, what we're called to be. Now, uh, as John Stott says uh, at this point, uh, we're a little short of breath. Uh, it's staggering to think of, of what being a, a Christian and being in Christ's church entails. And so Paul uh, gives us this word in verses 20 and, and 21 that supplies hope and gives us the resources that are necessary. To him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Uh, because power comes from him, the glory belongs to him. And you'll notice that what Paul does is explain or describe God's resources in terms of a, of a six-fold buildup. Notice, notice how this reads. To him who is able to do what we ask. That in itself would be enough. He's a God who answers our prayer. But Paul says he's able to do what we ask or think. He, he also hears the secret yearnings of our heart, the aspirations to be, to be righteous, the desires, the unuttered requests. He's able to, he's able to uh, fulfill our hopes and dreams. And not only that, he's able to do all that we ask or think, not part, 
Not some, but all. And furthermore, he's able to do beyond all that we ask or think. And abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And then exceeding abundant, exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think. That's where our power comes from. It comes from an indwelling Christ who's able to exceed, infinitely exceed our our expectations. Jesus said of us in the church that we, and this is actually the way he puts it, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. The church is God's agency in society to arrest the spread of corruption. We are salt and we're light. We, we, because truth has been revealed to us, we, we can see things as they really are. We're like the little boy in the emperor's new clothes. We, we, we see things as they really are. We're not deceived by the world and by the media and those around us. And so we can give light and be light. And furthermore, as, as, as Paul puts it, the church is the ground and the pillar of society. Uh, the, we're the basis of reality in the world. What, a, what a, 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 a monumental task God has given to us. And what are we? Are we noble, mighty, particularly intelligent or gifted or influential in terms of, uh, of our wealth, our political influence in the world? No, we're just a bunch of nobodies indwelt by someone whose call it is to bring salvation to the world. That's our task as a church. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks this morning that you've called us to this, to this great task, one that, that lends dignity to our, to our existence, one that gives us a reason for being. We're not here to enrich ourselves or to gain personal power or influence, but rather to bring glory to you by fulfilling the task that you've laid out before us. And to the extent that we do achieve these things, Father, we realize that they're simply the means to be uh, an agent of reconciliation in the world. Help us, Lord, to, to see the magnificent uh, assignment, commission that's ours, and to appreciate it for what it is, and not to be staggered by it but to realize that we have in Christ all the potential, all the resources, everything that's necessary to be salt and light in the world. We, uh, we ask for your strength and receive it. In Christ's name, amen.